Did you know CPAs work around the clock on taxes, audits? Yes, it's quite a shock. But business owners, they've got a dream. More tax saving strategies, that's what they need. Welcome to Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Proactive Tax Strategies podcast. I'm Patrice Sikora, and today our host, Ken New, will be joined by distinguished guest, Alan Hardy. Alan is here today to shed light on the world of private securities. Alan Hardy began his career in 1987 and has been helping others with investment and financial planning for over three decades. As one of the few wealth managers or investment professionals in the state of Tennessee, who also happens to be a licensed attorney... Alan has distinguished himself from the large crowd of stockbrokers and investment professionals whose scope of expertise and experience is relatively limited. Although practicing law is not his full-time profession, Alan's legal background serves him well in evaluating private equity investment opportunities for his clients. In addition to working with his private clients, Alan is a frequent speaker and writer on the topic of private equity investing and has authored many articles over the year that have appeared in various publications. So Ken, I'll turn this over to you now. Yeah, thank you, Patrice. Pleasure to be here with everyone. And we do have a great topic to discuss today. So we have Alan Hardy. Alan and I have known each other for a while now, and we both love to talk about private securities. And Alan is an expert in private securities and alternative investments. So we collaborate and agree on lots of the methodologies and have similar practices. Alan is a longtime advisor and has worked with alternative investments uh, over that period of time, explaining really what private securities are all about. So Alan, why don't you jump right into that? How do you incorporate private securities into your practice? Well, the typical client that comes to me is someone who has spent decades investing their money in the public park, in the public markets via mutual funds, stocks and bonds, ETFs. Uh, most people have 401ks and IRAs that they've put money in for many years. And they come to me because they've heard about the private markets and the opportunities to diversify their portfolio. Unfortunately, uh, the stock markets only represent about 2% of corporate America. If you look at the number of companies in America that are publicly traded, and what I mean by that is you can buy their stocks or their bonds on the public markets, there are about 4,000 such companies. On the other hand, there are over 200,000 successful companies that have many, million, many millions of dollars of profits that are private. And we try to help people get exposure to that private side of the corporate world in their portfolio to, to help better diversify it. Makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. So diversification, that's a, a big benefit for everyone. Uh, as the old saying goes, don't keep all your eggs in one basket. You're right about that. If you if you take a look at investment risk, which you know everyone is 
concerned with two or three things when they invest their money. Number one, they want good returns. Uh, number two, they want to limit their risk as much as possible considering what their investment objectives are. Everybody wants full liquidity. People love to have tax advantages with their investments. So in a perfect world, we could have an investment that has high returns, low risk, full liquidity, tax-free, but this is not a perfect world. So you have to balance all of those. In my experience, there's a lot of data and research that sh to back this up. The primary factor in long-term investment performance is not individual security selection like stock picking. The number one driver of performance is asset allocation. And unfortunately, most investors are allocated to just two asset classes, the stock market and the bond market. We try to take people from that, that two slice pie of stocks and bonds to a pie that has five or six slices that includes private securities like private equity, private debt, private real estate, maybe some energy. So that, that's a big part of what we do is helping people make that shift from that two slice pie to a five or six slice pie, which helps bring down overall portfolio risk. And I know you do the same thing, Ken. Yeah, absolutely. Diversification and being able to tap into private investment is a huge advantage. Uh, so let's dive more into that. What are some of the other advantages? Well, um, investors typically will categorize their investment objectives into a couple of different categories. One is growth. So typically young people say, I don't need income from my investments. I'm investing for retirement. So I want long-term growth. That's your typical young person who is working full-time, who may have at least a decade or more before they retire. But you also have older investors who their primary objective is income. Most retirees would love for their basket of investments, their portfolio, to generate as much income as possible without taking unnecessary risk. One of the beautiful things about the private securities world is there are so many opportunities to achieve both of those with you know, one investment. So I'll give you an example. A lot of the private securities that we get involved in have to do with real estate. And in the commercial real estate world, there are lots of opportunities for qualified investors to invest in portfolios of real estate that have a lot of potential for long-term growth, while at the same time produce cash flow of five, six, seven percent because they are cash flowing properties with good tenants. So Unlike the traditional world of investing, where you're investing in publicly traded stocks and bonds, you can achieve growth and income with private securities. And in the traditional publicly traded world, you kind of have to pick one or the other. If you look at the stock market, the S&P 500, which is the 500 largest companies in America, the average dividend of those companies is less than 2%. So you're not going to get much income from the stock market. 
if you look at the bond market in today's world, you can get about five, five and a half percent on high quality investment grade bonds, five to five and a half percent income, but you're not going to expect much growth off, off of that. So that's one of the great things I love about the private securities world is you have the opportunity to achieve both income and growth with, you know, individual cash flowing investments. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, so just to kind of recap, you know, the, the growth of an equity in the public markets has lower yielding dividend. And therefore, in current times, we've got this period of time where bonds are kicking off a higher relative income source, but we really don't have growth. In fact, we can have some uh, volatility in the price point of a bond. And uh, so that's what differs from private securities. Uh, I think in general, uh, private securities, in contrast to the public markets, um, you know, we can have folios that average, you know, maybe 8%, uh, which really can be attractive for clients that are seeking income. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. If you look at, let, let's take a look at bonds. You know, when someone buys a bond, they're essentially loaning money to a corporation in exchange for a fixed interest rate for a fixed period of time. If you look at publicly traded investment grade bonds in today's world, as I mentioned earlier, you know, those are paying five to five and a half percent interest. In the private markets, on the other hand, private debt, it's not unusual to have a private debt portfolio that's yielding as high as nine or 10% income without the volatility. When interest rates go up and down, publicly traded bonds experience fluctuations in value. For example, in 2022, not only was the stock market down significantly, the bond market was down about 15%. And people aren't accustomed to seeing their fixed income bonds lose value like that. One of the beautiful things about private bonds is that they're not they're not fluctuating up and down with the public markets because they're not publicly traded. So the, the typical private bond or private debt security that we put clients into, uh, typically the hold periods are anywhere from two years to about six years. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not unusual to have a portfolio of private securities, private debt securities with a weighted average yield of nine to 10 percent. And that's kind of unprecedented. And it has to do with the high interest rate environment we found ourselves in today. Uh, you're, you're making a great distinction here. And maybe we should go off on that just for a moment for clarity. Um, so private versus the public market, the public market is going to fluctuate. And wouldn't you agree that has a lot to do with emotion in many cases and maybe liquidity needs? Whereas what's not liquid in the private market can also preserve the capital uh, during volatility times. And one of the other advantages that seems in the private market is, is that, you know, especially in the income side, when you've got a shutdown uh, in terms of lending, like we've seen over the past year or two in the, um, in the mid cap markets, those companies still need capital and they're going to the private markets and paying higher and it's an advantage to our investors because they're able to utilize that nuance and leverage to higher income. 
Yeah, you made a great point, Ken, that, you know, public companies, mid-market companies, they need to raise capital just like the Fortune 500 companies. If you go back to a decade ago, if you were a solid private company that had been around for a while and you had a proven track record, you could go to any big bank and borrow about as much money as you wanted to. Things have changed quite a bit since those days. Uh, banking regulations changed over a decade ago that tightened lending standards. And then these high interest rates that we've seen over the last year and a half, that has also caused banks to tighten their lending standards. And so a lot of successful companies out there in the private markets, they can't go to the banks and get the money they need anymore. So they turn to the private equity world to help them raise capital, you know, via private lending or via selling some of the equity in their company through the private markets. The demand for private lending is much, much higher than the supply. And so that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of these private debt securities, you know, paying double digit interest rates while at the same time having assets and collateral backing up those loans to, to help mitigate the risk. Yeah, I appreciate that we went just a bit deeper into why all this is happening so that the listeners can understand that we're, we're not necessarily in a, um, th this is a natural thing. This is, we're, we're, we're looking at this as a strategy and being able to fit the need of the client with the product that's being produced here in the private sector. Uh, but one thing I think is important here, we're, we're not a one trick pony. We don't just sell product. We, we really look at overall portfolio planning and the idea of balancing and continuously rebalancing along the way. Uh, so we build a portfolio that's based on multiple strategies. And I think we're pointing that out here. Uh, we never really choose an investment, you know, purely on an income source uh, or tax advantages that we want to have a strategy that works across the board. So maybe you can comment on that as well. Yeah, that's a good point, Ken. If you look at uh, something in the investment world that we call correlation, that refers to whether or not certain types of securities or certain asset classes tend to move up and down together. One of the, one of the great things about the private securities world that makes it an important part of a portfolio is that private securities have very little correlation to the publicly traded stock and bond markets. In other words, they don't move up and down simultaneously. I will use 2022 as an example because that's fresh on all of our minds. Most investors that have, have a traditional stock bond portfolio lost money in 2022 in both their stocks and their bonds. Most people who have 401ks saw their 401ks, you know, take a dive in 2022. Well, at the same time, our private securities portfolios weren't really impacted by that. We, we continued to produce the same amount of monthly income for our clients that were taking income from their private securities portfolios. And because the private equity positions that we have clients in aren't publicly traded, they're not susceptible 
to the ups and downs of the markets. M much of those ups and downs are just irrational ups and downs due to investor behavior. And private securities are sort of insulated from that. So we typically look to have, you know, somewhere in the 20 to 30 percent range, 20 to 30 percent of someone's overall investment portfolio, we will typically put in private securities. And it helps balance all of the other investments they have, whether it's stock and bond portfolios or annuities or whatever other types of investments, you know, they may have. So again, as you pointed out earlier, Ken, we're not a, we're not a one trick pony. We're not looking to put all of somebody's money into private markets. We're just looking to put, you know, a fourth of it, maybe up to a third of it into private markets to give them exposure to asset classes that historically have performed better than the stock market and historically have not had any correlation to the ups and downs of the markets. And so our, our clients tend to like that approach and they like the fact that incorporating private securities does bring down the overall portfolio risk. Yeah, that's a great point, um, and I'm, and I appreciate you you pointing that out. I mean, the the use of private investments can uh, help dial up maybe some returns, and and uh, it may meet a risk profile for a client that has uh, more of an aggressive approach. And at the same time, we can utilize private investments that can dial down a risk profile, uh, especially for a client who maybe uh, needs to dial down a overall risk profile. So. Let's talk about that risk for just a moment, though. You know, there's there's risk in everything. And because there's always that risk associated with investing, what are some of the risks that I think it would be important to point out to listeners today about private investments? Yeah, risk is a very important topic. And I usually start the risk discussion by talking about one of the biggest risks that people don't think about, and that is investor behavior. Uh, there's a an organization out there called Dalbar that comes out with an annual study that shows how stock market investors performed relative to how the market did. And stock market investors have experienced returns of less than half of what the actual market did. And it has to do with investor behavior, trying to jump in and out of the markets and trying to guess when to buy and when to sell. One of the great things I like about the private securities markets is that risk is sort of taken off the table because since they are illiquid and you're in the investment for, you know, two, three, four, five years, and you're really protecting against yourself. You're protecting against your own behavior of saying, oh, I, I want to sell now or I want to buy now. And so that risk is mitigated quite a bit. But back to your original question, what are some of the risks? Just like the public markets, if you go into a, an equity investment in the private securities world, you do take some risk, just like you did if you bought a portfolio of stocks. There is, there is a risk of competition. There's a risk that management may not achieve their objectives. Um, you know, so that risk comes with any investment in equity, whether it's public or private. When you look at private debt, 
private bonds or private preferred securities or private notes. One of the risks there is obviously, oh, what if the borrower or the issuer of those securities does not pay off the debt? What if they stop making interest payments? What if a, a private bond matures and the company doesn't have the money to pay off the bond? That's a risk, just like it's a risk in the public market. So how do we mitigate that? When we're looking at private debt securities, the first thing we want to know is, does that organization or that borrower, do they have a history of paying off their debt? And if there's red flags there, we will shy away from that. If they've got a long track record of consistently paying off their debt, then we will dig deeper. Uh, one very big risk mitigator when it comes to private debt is the collateral or the assets that are backing up the private securities being issued. So we, we always look at that. You know, all financial advisors, you know, have different standards that they look at. But for me personally, I will not put a client in a private debt security unless I feel like there's enough collateral there that's well over 100% of the total value of the securities that it's backing up. So we look at that heavily. Interest rate risk is something that I like to talk about. If you look at publicly traded bonds, for example, publicly traded bonds tend to fall in value when interest rates are rising. That's why publicly traded bonds as a category were down about 15 or 16% in 2022 is because interest rates were starting to rise. In the private bond market, we really don't have to worry about that because typically, you know, as I mentioned earlier, typically you're looking at a two to six year hold period until maturity. So as rates, as interest rates in the market go up and down, we don't have to worry about it because we're not liquidating those bonds until they mature. And when they mature, we expect them to pay off because we're working with solid companies. And if they don't pay off, there's collateral there to back it up. So interest rate risk is something that we always talk about, but it's not as applicable to the private markets as it is to the public markets. Yeah, that's a great distinction. And so essentially the track record of that sponsor and, and especially if they have a long track record and they're expert in that particular, you know, it's not their first time. They've been doing it for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. They've got a long track record of success. And we discover that through this process called due diligence where we go through this this whole process to get to know what this sponsor is about and how they structured their deal. And so you have been, you, you really mentioned this, and it is important to take a look at the, uh, the due diligence when we're selecting a private security. Uh, there's thousands of them out there. You know, we might whittle that down to 20 or 30 or 40 that we use uh, across different sectors, uh, whether it be debt or whether it be equity or real estate or certain uh, areas of real estate and so on. Uh, maybe you could talk us through that whole vetting process from your perspective. What factors do you consider, you know, in a, in a deeper dive when you're 
taking a look at a security and a and a sponsor and uh, and how to fit it into a portfolio? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Ken. Let me point out something first before I go into our due diligence process. One big thing that I want to point out that's very important, a lot of people misunderstand when they hear the phrase private securities or private equity, a lot of times their mind goes straight to, you know, small startup companies. We typically are not putting clients in investments with, you know, startup companies that are trying to raise a few million dollars to, to jumpstart their company. That's not the world that we're in. That's I refer to that as the angel investing world where you have true startup companies that are just, just getting off the ground. Those are way too risky for what we're looking for. So well, I think the term I've heard with that, Alan, just to interrupt is, uh, and I love the term, but the term is called a moonshot, right? Yes. Like we're, we're, we're trying to hook onto something that uh, has no track history. We don't know if it's going to work. And if it does, we're going to go to the moon, Alice. <laughs> exactly. So really the, the first part of due diligence is, you know, looking at, how long has this company been around? Are they a, a are they a startup company that is truly just started up in the last couple of years? And if the case, if the answer is yes, that's not for us. So we're looking we're looking for companies that have a long track record of operating in whatever business they're in, and they have a long track record of growth and profitability and success. So we dig into the financials. There's really a, a three-step due diligence process that I like to talk about. You know, step number one is, you know, a, a private equity firm or private equity sponsor has a new offering, and they go through a process of putting together legal documents that they file with the regulators and so forth. And once they get through those hoops, then they approach the brokerage world and say, hey, we need help raising capital. The, the brokerage firm that you and I both work with, I'll, I'll use it, them as an example without mentioning their name, they have a due diligence department, a, a team of people that do a deep dive into all of those things that we look for to try to mitigate risk. You know, the history of the company, what do their financials look like, who are the execs or the people running the company, who's going to be running the, the fund, and once that due diligence department with our brokerage firm goes through that process and screens investments and they decide which ones that they think are solid, they then hire an outside law firm to do another deep dive into it. And that law firm produces an opinion letter that says, hey, we've looked at it as well and we think it's solid or, hey, we see some red flags, you should stay away from it. So that's kind of step two. Once it's gone through those first two steps, then step three is what you and I do, Ken. You and I, you and I jump on a plane and, you know, fly to a due diligence meeting for financial professionals like us who we need to do our own deep dive to make sure we like it, we think it's solid, that we understand it enough before we put it in front of a client. And, you know, that's why you and I spend a lot of time on the road every year, you know, visiting private equity firms to, to vet 
whatever offering they may have. So that three-step due diligence process takes place before we ever put any investment in front of a client. And like you mentioned earlier, Ken, thousands of private investment opportunities out there become available every year. And our brokerage firm's due diligence process narrows that down to where at any point in time, we've got access to 50, 60, 70 uh, private investment opportunities. And those do change a little bit every month. Every month, there's a few of them that close to new investors because they've raised the capital they needed to. And every month, we've got a, a few new offerings that that come to the table. So uh, due diligence is certainly a very important part of our business in this private equity world. Yeah, absolutely essential. I, I like to use the term best in breed. You know, you, you you hear about all these different private investments and many different sponsors and thousands of opportunities, hundreds, if not thousands of opportunities, and it whittles down to one, two or three uh, in different sectors that, uh, that are used the most. And, um, you know, it, it works out well, generally speaking, but there's really the the temperament of the client in mind here as well. Not everyone is suited for this type of investment. So who would be an ideal client from your perspective for private securities? Because not everyone can qualify and not everyone is suited for this type of investment. Uh, maybe you can dive into that a bit. Yeah, there's really uh, some regulatory requirements. And then there are, you know, some personal need personal objective kind of requirements. From a regulatory perspective, most of the private securities offerings that we have access to require one to be an accredited investor, which simply means that someone has a financial net worth of over a million dollars. And that cannot include any equity they may have in their home. But you can also qualify as an accredited investor by having a high income, a single person with an annual income of at least 200,000 or a married couple with a joint income of at least 300,000 can qualify someone uh, to be an accredited investor and participate in these private securities offerings that we have. Once someone meets that qualification, it really comes down to what their investment objectives are. So every client that comes, every potential client that comes into my office for an initial consultation, I mean, part of part of my job is to assess them, assess their financial needs, their investing objectives to see if the private securities world may fit into their portfolio and may may meet some of the objectives that they may have. The fact that private securities are illiquid you know, for that two to six year period, typically, uh, some people aren't comfortable with that. If you're not comfortable with having a portion of your portfolio that is illiquid, then the private securities world may not be for you. But we, what we have found is very few people that come to us need more than, you know, 70% of their portfolio to be liquid. They don't need that much to be liquid. So they typically don't have any issue with having 20 to 30 percent of their money tied up and being illiquid. So having said that, you know, once someone 
is comfortable with that and we start digging into what their objectives are, it really boils down to, you know, two things. Do they want growth and income? Both. Or do they just want one or the other? My typical client wants to achieve growth in the long term, but they also like to see that dividend income hitting their account every month or every quarter. Even if they're a younger person that doesn't need the income, that dividend income is just part of the growth of their overall portfolio. So we we do a deep dive into you know, what their objectives are long-term, what their objectives are short-term. Do they need income? Do they not need income? Some of our, some of our really high income investors, which we have a lot of those since you have to be a, you know, essentially a millionaire to participate in this world. A lot of them are looking for ways to reduce their taxes. And there are a lot of opportunities in the private securities world that come with tax advantaged solutions, you know, either, you know, reducing income taxes or having income, you know, a a one liner that I like to share with a lot of my clients is, Hey, it's really nice to have monthly income. That's not taxed as monthly income and clients will say, Oh, well, how do you achieve that? Well, I'm not going to, you know, get into the details on this call. That's beyond the scope of this call. But there are lots of ways that people can reduce taxes or mitigate their tax liability using private securities. Well, that's a a great way for us to segment into our next episode, bringing up some of this advantage of taxes. As we get into this wrap up now, I think it'd be great for us. And first of all, an excellent episode, really great spending time with you talking about alternative investments. And, you know, we dived into the income portion of it, the growth portion of it, non-correlation, diversification. And so there's all these benefits. And then you bring up one of the crown jewels, which is the ability to be able to cut taxes. And I know that's first and foremost for anyone out there uh, thinking about growing assets and taking income. And uh, so we've done a great job, I think, of positioning the alternative investment for the listeners. And next episode, could we get together and do some case study and introduce this whole idea of getting income and still paying less money in taxes for, uh, or mitigating the taxes for particular uh, particular clients and so on. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's a great idea, Ken. I mean, really the best way to understand how the private securities world can really fit into someone's portfolio and to help them with their objectives and also to, you know, help them mitigate their tax liability, the best way to understand all that is to go through a live study of an actual client. We won't use their name, of course, but we can get into the details of a real client and what their situation was and how we used private securities to better diversify their portfolio, generate more income, while at the same time reducing their taxes. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that'd be a great idea to go through a case study on the next episode. 
Well, let's tee it up for that then. Uh, our next episode, will take that deep dive into a case, real life case. Names will be uh, redacted for privacy purposes and so on. We'll get into the income and uh, add that added benefit of tax strategy. Alan, thank you so much. Great episode today. Well, thank you, Ken. I enjoyed uh, being on your show here and always enjoy the dialogue with you. And this Great. was a wonderful episode on private securities, gentlemen, really insightful. So, Ken, thank you. And a big thanks to you, Alan Hardy, for sharing your expertise on private securities. So that wraps up today's episode of the Proactive Tax Strategies podcast. But make sure you join us next time you hear there's going to be another great episode here with with Alan and you will get more insights into wealth management and proactive tax strategies. Until then, stay informed and proactive. Thank you for listening to the Proactive Tax Strategies podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.pinnaclefinancialwealthmanagement.com or give us a call at 321-454-3623. Investment advisory services offered through Arlette Wealth Management AWA, an SEC registered investment advisor. Pinnacle Financial Wealth Management AWA and AWM are independent entities. Discussions are meant to be general in nature and may not be suitable for all investors. Please consult a tax professional regarding any tax implications.